There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, welcome back. Great to be back. And for this week's episode, we sat down, well, virtually sat down with Carl Richards. Carl, who runs a company called Behavior Gap. Carl is a New York Times columnist. He's known as the sketch guy. He's an author of The Behavior Gap, One Page Financial Plan, How I Invest My Money. Carl's been known or listened to on many podcasts. The Kitsies and Carl podcast is a regular one. And he runs the Society of Advice, which is a society of real financial advisors. So, Greg, this was just a great discussion with Carl. Carl's a great guy to talk to, and I think uh, all of our listeners will enjoy hearing him because everything he does is geared towards taking the complex and making it simple. And the sketches, everything he does is just to take these very complex ideas, and certainly the investment industry is full of them, and just to boil it down to something that's simple to understand and helps people simplify their lives, basically. Exactly. So look him up, Carl Richards, and with that, we'll let you listen to the show. Enjoy. Hey, Carl, how you doing? Fantastic. Yeah, excited to be here. Well, we're sure excited to have you on the show. Somebody that we've been following for a long time in our group, right back to the original sketches that you started with, with the New York Times. I think that was your first sort of published materials, was it? Yeah, it was. The first place I did any writing in public was the New York Times. How did that come to be? Like, how did you go from, I have to backtrack here. Greg and I listened to you on a webinar two weeks ago, and you gave us the story of how you started in the securities industry by applying for a job as a security guard. (laughs) That was an interesting story. But how did you get from that to New York Times columnist and so many things you've done since? I mean, the short answer is I just played in traffic a lot and I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, it's easy to sort of look backwards and make up narratives about how it was some grand plan, but the truth is it wasn't. I had a business where I was giving advice to clients, much like your business. And I had this experience, which you have and all your listeners would relate to being on the other side of the table for this, where... I was sitting there with very smart, successful clients trying to explain a topic that I thought was critical for them to understand. So it could have been something like risk or standard deviation or like all these words we kind of throw around. It could have been diversification, asset allocation, any of those things. And again, across the table for me were some really smart, successful people. So it wasn't their fault, but I was just getting blank stares. So it was clearly my fault. I wasn't doing a good job explaining it. And I remember one day, I remember who it was actually, their names were Dave and Diane. I remember I, out of an active sort of like desperation, I jumped up to a whiteboard that I'd never used that was in the conference room and was like, no, like this. And I drew like 
as I remember, it was like some sort of like maybe cash flow modeling or something. And I just drew like some squares and some arrows. And they were like, oh, oh, I get it now. And I remember thinking, <laughs> this is crazy. So I took that image that was on the whiteboard. They asked if they could take it home. So they asked me to draw on a piece of paper. They took it home. And I repeated that a couple of weeks later with another set of clients. And they called afterwards and said, that thing you drew, could you scan it? and email it to us so I could show my spouse. And I was like, oh yeah. And when I saw it go out like electronically, I saw it like in digital form. I was like, oh, I could share that with other people. You know, not knowing that you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to draw things with a Sharpie on about financial stuff. Who gave you permission to do that? I didn't know any better. So I did that. I started putting them up on a website. And for years, it was my mom and my sister who were the only ones sort of reading it. I found out later my sister was lying. So it was like <laughs> my mom. And then later I just kept doing that. I kept kind of playing it, doing, I was like sharing my work, doing work in public. And one day I got an email from my, who's now become a good friend, but the editor of the Your Money section. And there's a million things that could have gone into that kind of day he was having. And I've been to his office. I've seen how many books he gets mailed. They don't have time to if you send an email to an editor at the New York Times and say, I think you'd like my work, it's not going to get anywhere. Somebody else had sent something, hit the right day. I don't know why. He sent me a note saying, hey, I love these. Do you want to try them for us? And I knew enough to say yes. And that was what was going to be just like a one-week sort of little project. And at the end of the one week, I said, hey, do you want to do this? Should we keep going? And how about once a week? That will surely you'll run out of material. 10 years later, every single week, I didn't miss a week for 10 years. So that's how it happened. No grand plan, just a series of like playing in traffic and then getting lucky enough to get hit. <laughs> well, I mean, some of my favorite sketches that you've done, there's one Venn diagram where it talks about how things that matter and things you can control. And, and of course, where they intersect is the things that you should really focus on. And I really love the way that you can simplify the message with clients. And we use that type of sketch with clients as well, because a couple of weeks ago, Greg and I did an episode on language and how, how many times have you been in a meeting and somebody's tried to use really big language to explain something? And it's like, are they trying to use that to prove something to me or are they actually trying to get a clear message out? And it seems like these sketches get the clear message out. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to all of your listeners, you should feel confident when you go to hire a financial advisor, anybody giving you advice around money, you should feel completely comfortable. You should feel just fine. It's within your rights to say, hey, I'm not sure I understand that word. Could you back up? Because our industry, not unlike other industries, I mean, legal industry, accounting, law, medicine, everybody does this where we use words in our industry that we forget that we didn't know. We'll use a word like risk, and then we'll try to clarify risk by saying standard deviation, as if anybody in the real world thinks that way. If you took a statistics class in college, you tried to forget it as soon as possible. So I think your listeners should know, and it sounds like you've done a good job educating people on this, that like, if you don't know, it's your money. There should be no such thing as a dumb question where you just raise your hand and go, hey, I'm not sure I understand that. And as an industry, we need to do a better job of that. 
And I think it's something, Carl, that you really need to, as advisors, we really need to think about as we speak to every single client, because in your case, you were lucky enough to be able to see Dave and Diane and realize they weren't understanding the concept that you were explaining to them. And many times we will get a knowing nod of the head, and that doesn't actually tell you for sure whether or not the message is getting through. And so really knowing how to read and understand and control your own language as an advisor is really critical every single meeting, because if the message doesn't get across, I guess you've lost the opportunity. That's probably the email I get most from the people, people who are interacting with our industry. The email I probably get most is, would you please tell your colleagues and friends inside the industry to stop talking that way? And I mean, it's kind of important to know that I think there are a group, and this could be like a little hint for all the listeners, like there are a group of financial advisors, I sort of think of them as the fake ones, who use that kind of language as a selling tool. And it's actually something that in the broad industry is sort of taught even sometimes where it's sort of like, we'll dig a pit and throw the client in there and then look down and say, I'm the only one with the rope. So if you run into somebody who's purposely making it sound very, very complex, you should just, it doesn't mean anything other than just like have an antenna go up a little bit like, oh, that's interesting. But then there are others, and I think of them as the real financial advisors. There are others that their intent is to use clear, simple language. Sometimes they slip just because we forget. And it's not an intentional thing. And those are the ones you should feel completely comfortable saying, hey, could you back up? And when you say that, you'll notice them say, oh, yeah, 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 of course. Let me, it'll be a reminder to them too, because it's language like that, jargon, industry jargon and inside terms is a little bit like weeds in a garden, right? As soon as you get them all pulled, they show up again. It's a constant fight to keep the language in a way that people will understand. So yeah, I think it's a good gauge of the type of relationship you may have because when you hire an advisor, you want a relationship where you can feel comfortable asking questions and feeling heard and feeling listened to. That's what my wife says to me too. <laughs> she wants to... Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. We've joked internally, there was a survey a while ago that used fake financial terms and they surveyed a broad audience to see if people would pretend to know them. And one of the terms was forward yield disbursement bond, which of course <laughs> doesn't exist. You can't pay interest in advance, you pay interest in arrears. But many of the people that took the survey just claimed to know what these products were. And it was more, I guess, they just didn't want to look like they didn't know what they were. I mean, I completely understand. Like, I, if somebody had asked me what a forward yield disbursement bond was, I could have been like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I think we should just remember it serves no one. And this is hard speaking to your audience of consumers, clients of financial advisors. Like, it's hard, but I'm just begging you to believe me that you should feel completely within your rights to call somebody out on that. And by call somebody, you can be polite about it. You say, I'm not sure I know what that means. Could you please back up? It does no good to walk to the car. I know why we do it, especially around money. Like the last thing we want to show is like, we don't know what we're doing. But I don't think you'd behave that way with the surgeon. <laughs> if the surgeon was talking to you about things and you didn't understand, I think you just go, no, I don't know what that means. It's really, I've been paying attention to this a lot lately. And I've noticed that people actually like me 
better and they think I'm smarter when I ask dumb questions. I've noticed that I can talk to somebody really smart and if they say something I don't understand, I go, oh, wait, 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 wait. Could you back up and explain that again? They actually think I'm smarter than if I just nod my head and pretend. Plus, it's your money. You've got to be able to ask those questions. It does you no good to walk to the car and go, did you understand? And No, I didn't either. Ask the questions. This work you've done over the years has led you to, well, authoring a number of books and creating a new business and a new society of advisors. Maybe tell us a little bit about how your work has led you to the Society of Real Financial Advisors and the fellowship and what's your goal from doing that work? So the Society of Advice is what we call it now. And it's really sort of a global community of real financial advisors or planners. And the reason I started it is because I kept running into this experience. If you have the sort of blessing in your life of working with a real financial advisor, you know the impact they've made. And in many cases, they've relieved massive amounts of stress and worry and concern. And I kept running into this experience where I would see that. I would see the work that real my colleagues and friends were doing and the difference they were making in people's lives. And then I would see what people would portray as the industry. And for good reason. Like we've got a bunch of fake financial advisors out there doing stuff that's bad and causing damage. And that's what's in the press and that's what's on the news. And that there's a whole, I call it the financial pornography circus that's like helping the public think that this is going to be like going to meet with a used car salesperson that's just going to sell you stuff. And then they go and most of the time that's what happens. A financial advisor in air quotes I'm doing starts throwing prescriptions, just pitching product. And I kept running into that. And I would explain to people particularly like journalist friends, I would explain to people, no, 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 there's like, there's real ones, like people you try. And the way I always said it was like, there's people I would send my mom to. And they would look at me like the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, like it was a fairy tale. And I was like, that's so crazy. So how do you find these real ones? Because I know a couple thousand of them around the world that if people knew what they did, there would be a line outside their doors. But no one knows what they do because the industry, this big industry, has drowned them out. And so that's why I started this society was like, look, it's time to make it not so secret anymore. There's a huge problem in the world. Everywhere I go, I spent three and a half years living in New Zealand recently. We just, in January, we moved to London. I traveled all over South Africa and Australia and the US and Canada. Everywhere I go, it's the same thing. Humans are feeling insecure about money. The word I hear most often is anxious. And yet there's more blog posts, there's more podcasts, there's more books, there's more robot toys, there's more all of those things. And yet people are feeling more and more anxious. And the only solution to me is like real financial advisors stepping up, like raising their hand and saying, hey, this is the work I do. This is what I stand for. And I just want to help amplify those voices so that we mainly not because I care about the advisors, which I do, but mainly because I care about the two or three or 400 people that they could relieve that anxiety from. I just see it as an opportunity to make a difference in the world. We agree with you hundred percent. I mean, we focus on things like building a foundation by doing a financial plan first, before you ever start talking about product 
at all. But it's amazing to me the number of people I've met over the years who come in and they've been referred and they want us to pitch them on why they should deal with us. And they'll show me a mock portfolio that somebody put together for them at another firm. I just think like you've put the roof on the house before building the foundation. How do you start there? And is this the same in all of those markets that you discussed that there's just those people? Everywhere around the world. To your listeners, it would be important for you to understand as you consider either your current financial advisor or one that you're thinking about hiring. If you walk in and they start writing prescriptions before they took any time to diagnose, you should feel comfortable to leave because you would never fill a prescription from a doctor unless you felt thoroughly diagnosed. And until you feel thoroughly diagnosed, there should be no prescription. That could take a meeting or two. It could take more than that, but it certainly should at least be taking a meeting long where you feel heard and understood and the situ- you feel thoroughly diagnosed so that then when the prescription comes, look, if you get a prescription from a doctor, if you feel thoroughly diagnosed, you take a piece of paper that you can't even read and you go to a, another scary place with people with white lab coats on you hand it to them and they go in some back room and they jiggle some bottles around and they come back out and they hand you a bottle. You sign a document that says, if you grow a third arm, you won't sue anybody. You take it home and you take it. You didn't get a second opinion. You didn't Google the medicine. Like if you've ever tried that, don't click on images. (laughs) You don't do any of those things. The only reason you do that is because you felt thoroughly diagnosed. If you get one whiff, that you weren't thoroughly diagnosed, of course you're getting second opinions. You're never going to take the medicine if you don't feel thoroughly diagnosed. And I think the same applies here. We've trained people to think what the job is, is to argue about, to debate and pitch on whether you should take a plane, train, or an automobile on a trip before you've even decided where you're going. And so I think as you consider that relationship, you should be thinking to yourself, does this person understand I like to call it my desired future state. Does this person understand where I want to go? Because if they don't, I don't care about the portfolio because the portfolio is worthless without knowing where I want to go. That's true all over the world. Right on. And as you're saying that, it just, it reminded me of your work on behavior gap, as you call it, where you've got investment return and then you have investor behavior and there's a gap between those. This is exactly what you're describing as I hear it. I mean, look, investor behavior is really just human behavior. When markets go down and things get uncertain and scary, we want to get out. And when markets go up, we're hardwired to get more of the stuff that gives us security and pleasure and get away as fast as we can from things that cause us pain. Now that's kept us alive as a species, Like, that's why you haven't been eaten by a tiger. Like, that's a good thing. But the way it translates to investing is when the markets are down and you hear about it in the news and your neighbors are yelling and everybody's worried, that's after the markets are down. You really just want to get out because it's like your hand is on a burning stove. You just, like, get me out. But we all know that doesn't make sense. With the benefit of a little bit of hindsight, it's obviously buying high and selling low is a bad idea. Well, the only way to solve that problem is what we were just talking about before, is you need to realize the deeper why around the portfolio. Like the question I like to think about is why is your money invested the way it is? 
Well, if the answer is because my advisor thought it was a good idea, if the answer is I read about it in The Economist, if the answer is I heard about it from the guy at the club, those aren't good enough answers to keep you invested when things get scary. The only right answer is this portfolio gives me the greatest chance of meeting my future goals. Now that implies that you defined your future goals and then you build a portfolio to match to match those goals to get you there. So the portfolio was built intentionally, not as like a smorgasbord of investments based on what you heard from your friends. So that to me is why a real financial advisor is so important if they do the job right. Most financial advisors in air quotes again don't do the job right, but the real ones do and that to me is the only way to solve the behavior gap problem. Investor behavior, the only solution I know of, and I've been working on it for 25 years almost, the only way I know to get people to behave correctly when markets are scary and when they're greedy, like fear and greed, the only way to get humans to behave correctly is to have a deeper yes to them to say no to those things that feel like they should. And that deeper yes is called a plan. I've also been in the business, Carl, for about 25 years. And when I look at the evolution of the business from when I started, I started at a large bank-owned firm in Canada. And basically, every day we would start with, okay, well, what are we going to do today? And it would be, well, what stock are we going to sell and what stock are we going to replace it with? And of course, our business model has evolved dramatically since then. What's your sense of, are you optimistic about the trends in our industry over the last 25 years, or are you seeing disturbing trends in other directions? How do you feel about how things are going in the advice industry? I feel like, what's the right word? Schizophrenic's not quite the right word, but just like dual personalities. Like I feel like the industry, in air quotes, the big financial services industry to me is scary. It doesn't feel like that's getting any better, but at the very same time, I'm insanely optimistic about this collection, this growing sort of group, this growing gathering of people who are giving real fun. This growing group of people I'd send my mom to, I keep running into, like I can now point to hundreds, whereas I used to only be able to point to like five. And that's partially just because of my travels, but I know people in London, I'm pointing out the window. Like I know people here in London, I would send my mom to. I know people in New Zealand. I know people in Australia. I certainly know people in Canada and all over the United States now. So I feel like, and that group is finding their voice. And I feel like maybe even as a group, there will be some amplification, like just some megaphones that finally get to say like, hey, go tell the others, look over here. There's people like this. So I'm, I'm insanely optimistic. I try not to think about the industry because that just bothers me. I just want to think about the individual financial planners doing massively good work. I love it. I got to tell you, I watched a movie the other night with my family. It was an Adam Sandler movie called Click. Have you seen that one? No? It's like from 2008 or something. But in the movie, Adam Sandler gets to, he gets a remote control from the angel of death. He doesn't know it's the angel of death when he meets him, but he's able to fast forward his life through all kinds of challenges and always get to the optimal result without having to do any of the work. But of course, this just doesn't work very well and he lives an awful life. (laughs) So it feels like in our industry, there's too many people that are trying to fast forward through all the challenges and just get to the end goal without putting the work in and maybe being present to their situation. But 
what do you think about that way of thinking about being present to where you are and how it relates to where you want to be? I actually think that's at the root of this sort of personal finance equation. And I think there's a reason why people aren't feeling any better about their relationship with money, despite 5,000 times more books, whatever, like you go into Barnes and Noble or whatever bookstores are open these days and, or you go on Amazon and you look, there's so many books and people aren't feeling any better. And I think the reason is it's all still hacking at the branches. You're just sort of finding a faster, cuter, better designed way to cut your own fingers off. I think what's at the root of that problem is simple awareness. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about investing or budgeting. At the root of the problem is awareness. Like just start noticing how you interact with money. Start noticing, look, budgeting is pretty simple. We want to spend extravagantly on the stuff that brings us happiness and joy. And we want to cut ruthlessly on the stuff that doesn't matter. Well, in order to figure that out, we got to pay attention. Same with our investments. We got to figure out like, oh, I'm feeling like, like, and I think being aware, A, having a plan and real financial advisors don't do financial plans. (laughs) They do financial planning. But that starts with having a plan so that you have a benchmark to compare yourself with. And by benchmark, I don't mean invest. So that you have a baseline to compare yourself with so that you can start saying like, oh, we're on track. We're a little off track. Oh, it turns out the track changed. Like we don't even want that goal anymore. But in order to know that, you have to have taken the time to establish that. And people don't know how to do, humans, we don't know how to do that. We don't really even know how to get clear about our goals. And I think that's another job of a real advisor is to teach people the process of goal clarification, but we're just all guessing at it. We learn what our goals should be by looking at what other people's goals are. And Instagram hasn't made that easier. So I think you're really pointing at something important, which is doing the hard internal work of getting clear about what we want. And once we know that, it's much easier to put in sort of a kind of the next step to get there on the path. That's excellent. Excellent advice. I know we only have you for another minute or so. Actually, I think we're four minutes over our allotted time with you. But I guess lastly for me, I just wanted to ask, what do you see your society providing over the next 20 years? What's your end goal over the next 20 years from the Society of Advice? I mean, I realized a couple of years ago, I mean, it's kind of a crazy story, actually. I was in Vietnam to speak at a big conference. And I was feeling really sad. Wait, was that Sorry for North myself. Vietnam or South Vietnam? Uh, where? <laughs> Ho Chi Minh City or something. I, I don't even remember. I was, at the time, I was flying around so often that I literally would arrive at the airport and open my phone and go, where am I going? Like, I didn't know where I was going. But I know I was in Vietnam and I was feeling sad. In fact, I know I was in Ho Chi Minh City. I was feeling a little sorry for myself because I had to travel and I was away from my family and I'd flown from New Zealand, which I'd never wanted to leave. And I got there and I had this moment while I was out on a run where I was like, I just heard, felt like the universe essentially just saying, you've got a chance to change an industry. What more did you want? Like, stop complaining. Like, I put you right there to change. And so that's the goal. The goal is to change an industry. The goal is, and really the goal is for nobody to remember a time when it was different and the real deep goal is that nobody will know I had anything to do with it at some point, right? Like the industry just takes over on this idea that a real financial advisor is a guide 
in a changing landscape, not a defender of an outdated map. This is a process and a relationship, not a product and an event that real financial advice understands that this is ongoing goals or guesses, storm's gonna blow in. When the plan blows up, we know what to do. We're here for you. We got tools in the backpack. Like that whole philosophy of what real planning looks like is my goal with the society is literally to change the industry. And if we can do that, the good news is it's not because I care about the industry all that much. It's not that I care about the advice, which I do, but it means to me we could be solving one of the world's most challenging problems when you point at adult male suicide rates and divorce rates and all that. Like they all, there's always one factor that ranks really high among all of them. It's money. If we can help people sort that out at scale, that's pretty cool. So that's my goal with the society. Very cool. Thank you, Carl. That's a great message to leave on. And again, we really appreciate you taking the time to spend this time with us. And we're keeping you from your family. So we want to let you go and do that because that's important. Greg, any last thoughts? No, just again, thank you very much for sharing your insights with us and our listeners, most importantly. And we just hope you and your family are safe and healthy and stay that way until we get past this little business that's going on outside us right now. Greg, thank you. And Colin, like then thank you for the work you're doing on behalf of your listeners. We all know you don't need to be doing this. And so it's an act of generosity that we all appreciate. So thank you. And thanks for letting me on. Thank you, Carl. Anytime. You're welcome back anytime. That's an open invitation. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Thank you. Well, thanks again to Carl Richards for joining us from London, England. He's been living there for a year, but he's a guy that moves around. He's lived in New Zealand, originally from the States, but he can do what he does from anywhere. And it was great for him to join us from London. So thanks again, Carl. And thanks to our listeners. And I guess we'll see you next time when we're talking about something, I don't know, maybe even more interesting. Could be, but that was pretty good. That was pretty good. (laughs) All right. Till next time. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.